Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last week, we began a conversation with Jane Jackson, one of my Click That Teaches coaches. Jane was sharing with us her background with horses. She grew up in a family that always had ponies. They were passed down from child to child. So Jane, as the youngest of eight, inherited the pony who had taught all of her sisters and brothers to ride. As a teenager, she discovered eventing and she ended up riding with Denny Emerson. Many people leave horses behind as they head off to college and the start of their adult life. But Jane continued to ride and teach. And when her own daughter was a teenager, she decided that she wanted to do even more teaching. And as part of that, she wanted to breed her own ponies. So that's when she switched from using clicker training now and then as a problem solving tool to fully figuring out how to make positive reinforcement work. When she bred her first pony, Andy, she made the commitment that she was going to raise him using clicker training. We're gonna pick up again where we left off in the conversation and we'll find out how that experiment evolved. That I wanted to to do more teaching and, and have my own ponies for that. And so I got a little mare that was bred and my Andy pony was born the next year. And that was when I decided, okay, I'm really going to do this. This, this foal that is born is going to be raised with positive reinforcement. I am going to fully immerse myself because up until then, that, that previous seven years, I'd been playing with it and dabbling with it and trying it for this and trying it for that. And um, my, I, it was a conscious commitment when he was born that I was now a clicker trainer. I was now. That doesn't mean I knew what I was doing yet. It doesn't mean I didn't run into lots of problems that I still went, wait a minute, how do I do this with this? But the commitment was there and has main, been maintained ever since. There are times when, as an experienced horse person, you know how to get something done with the skills that you mm-hmm. had prior to clicker training. You know, if I just gave this horse a good yep. clobbering, he'd stand there kind of thing. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But was, were there times when it was a struggle where you just would say, I- I'm committed to the clicker training, but oh, it would be so tempting to just pull this from my older um, skill set? Yeah, and it wasn't so much about teaching something new that way as it was dealing with problems. So I have a Scots-Irish heritage. I have a bit of a temper. Ah. And it was those times when something went wrong that my reflexes wanted to come out and whap somebody. And I specifically remember with Andy, he was not, you know, he was a weanling and we were teaching about leading and... He basically, he, he was behind me. He reached out and struck me in the back of the leg with a front foot. Ouch. And my brain now knows he was a baby. He wasn't trying to hurt me. He was just doing something babies do. 
But at the time, I was incensed. And I thought, I can't let him get away with that. If I let him get away with that, he's going to keep doing that. And so I would put him away and come in to the computer in the very cold back room back then where we kept our computer and I would get on the click writer list and I would say, what do I do about this? And the people of the day would calm me down and get me set back on the path <laughs> of being okay with it. And, you know, and so the next year my pony rumor was born. So I was able to problem solve through things a little better with her and then the year after that was the year that Percy was born. And he, he has been more genuinely, positively reinforced, trained for his life than the other two, simply because I kept running into things with the other two. Not that I would give up, but that I just, I didn't know how to right, do. Right. Um, and by the time he came along, I sort of sorted through most of the issues. Um, at least the issues they threw at me. He's thrown a whole bunch of new issues at me. Yes, he has. <laughs> yeah. But it is quite it is quite the learning curve. It's a fascinating journey when you start exploring this approach and and, and especially when you bring skills into it because those those skills both are a huge advantage. Um, you know how to do things. You know what things are you know, supposed to look like. It's a huge advantage. But then some of the old habits of thought can creep right. in that get in the way. And the, and the more you start exploring clicker training, the more you really see it as this. It's, it's not just a tool. It is a, a philosophical approach. It's a mm -hmm. it's a it's a lifestyle approach, really. Mm -hmm. I think for some people, what may be difficult to deal with is that it makes them feel wrong about what they did before. Yeah, absolutely. And so to reconciliate that, I think, is uh, is a challenge. You know, so how how did you reconcile the two? You know, what you did before and what you did now with what you knew now. Well, it, it's that saying, you do the best you can with what you know at the time, and when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. Maya Angelou. One of my favorite authors. I never get mad at my stepping stones because they are, you know, the, the things that I learned, mm. the things that I uh, did took me to the next stepping stone and the next stepping stone. And I never get mad at or regretful of things that I learned and things that I've done in the past. I remember there was one training technique that I learned from John Lyons. He called it the east-west-north-south exercise. It's a, essentially, it's a hazing exercise. And you ask the horse to move over to the left and then to the right and then to back up and to come forward. And and you're, you use it it's a it's a tool that you bring out when a horse is way over threshold and you you need some way of managing their feet so they don't bolt out of your hand and you know ideally you don't want to be in that kind of situation but you know if you put a horse on a trailer and drove down the street and unloaded him at your friend's house and they come out saying I, I'm away from home. I can't cope. Right. What are you going to do? And and I remember using that exercise. And every time I used it, I would think, I mm. hate doing this. 
it works, but I hate doing it. And in 10 years, I don't want to be right. I don't want to need this exercise anymore. And it's been, you know, it's been at least 20 years since I've used it. But I'm glad, you know, I never get mad at myself for having learned that technique, because at the time, given the skill sets that were available to me, the horses I was handling, the understanding of training that I had at that time, and it would have, I probably learned that 25 plus years ago. It was, it was an effective tool. It was not, uh, it was not, I didn't use it abusively, but there are so many things that work better that I don't have to go there anymore. And I think that's a lot of what um, we need to be kind to ourselves and recognize why was I learning those techniques then? And, And look at how that led me to this, which led me to think about that, which brought me to the current understanding of of training. Yeah, I always, you know, I always tell people when they start learning from me, I say there are advantages to to having a long history with horses and there is an advantage to not to having no history because yes, the people who have no history have no baggage. They don't have to unlearn anything. Yep. But the people who do have a history, the best way I can describe it is they see what's going to happen before it happens. Because you spend a lifetime with them. And you just, well, this isn't a behavioral thing, but I was sitting right here yesterday looking out the window on a conference call, and one of my ponies walked down the hill and laid da- walked up the hill and lay down in the snow. And I said, uh-oh. And I thought about it afterward, and I thought all he did was lie down in the snow, and I knew we were in trouble because that was not right. That was not normal. Right. And sure enough, I had a Is he okay? He is now, yes. Thank you. Um I, Don't you hate that? Yeah. Just <laughs> but it's that looking at a horse lie down and you, you, your stomach just goes, yeah. ooh. Yeah, and that's. But it's that you know, it's that history that I have that has taught me that. And just like, well, the example I use for so much is trying to help someone work with their horse on the grass, and you know, telling her to use rapid rate of reinforcement to keep his head up and if he did make a dive for it you know be a post so he couldn't and she just he kept getting his head down and she couldn't see it soon enough to be a post to stop it to prevent it right um and i could so i could demonstrate all i wanted but there was nothing that was going to give her that that history that i had other than a history of of seeing what was going to happen before it happened. So then you have to change the environment, change the setting, get them off grass and teach them somewhere else. But it was just very obvious to me at the time that 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 was a big difference. This being her first horse, a challenge she had to deal with. And we had to break down smaller for her than for someone who who wasn't that new to it. Yeah, which is a, a great point to make, you know, in terms of it's it's that whole it's always a study it's actually not a study of one it's a study of two yeah uh, handler and horse and what is it that this particular team needs it's it doesn't matter if you could do it right uh, what matters is 
can they do it together and what are how how much do you have to change the environment to find that place where they can be successful mm -hmm. and then build forward from from there and then I, I've always said that there's sort of two main groups that that are going to push clicker training f into sort of the new realms of discovery and and one of those groups is the very experienced horse people people like yourself who come into clicker training with a skill set who know how to ride who know how to who know how to set up a, a gymnastics to teach horses to go over fences or who knows they know what shoulder in looks like and what a a, a good trot looks like etc cetera, etc cetera. and when you give uh, a skilled horse person the the power of clicker training the sky's the limit when you combine uh knowledge that that knowledge of training and riding and horses with clicker training it's a great combination but then the other group are the people who know nothing because they don't know how things are normally taught and they're not in i sort of think of it sort of the um, the rut of horse training so they don't know that you you don't teach something that way and and so they come up with all kinds of neat novel ways of shaping behavior and as a uh, someone who's been around horses there's things where I look at that and I just think well duh why didn't I think of that it's so obvious well of course I didn't think of it I've got my horse training <laughs> blinders on and, right you know I think I think it's easier um, it's not something you could say about traditional training I think the fact that the the clicker training I mean it doesn't trigger conflicts between handlers and horses. There can still be confusion if you're not very skilled and you're beginning, but I mean, we know that conflict is not, you don't have to dominate your horse. You don't have to show who's boss. This is not the approach. And so I think it gives, it opens up the possibility of exploring on your own more than if you were going the traditional route where you would probably need more guidance in order not to in order to stay to stay safe whereas with the clicker training you can explore and it's not dangerous because you're not putting yourself in a conflict with your animal but they're big <laughs> they are yeah they are big and if they're if they're, yeah, and if they're frustrated, if they're too eager, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, you can still get in trouble. Right. But I think you, once you start mastering the principles behind learning, you can, you can do quite a lot, actually, with your horse on your own. Yes. You know, you can explore quite a lot, uh, whereas normally you would need more guidance. You would need to have a course. I find it's one of the advantage of, of clicker training is that even if you begin, if you, if you dedicate uh, enough time to deepen your knowledge of the principles of learning, you can uh, have a very good time with your animals and yes. explore quite a lot. But there are, I think one of the, the challenges of working with horses is for many things, 
you really do benefit enormously from instruction. And, and that's primarily around the riding. You know, like Jane, you were lucky growing up with horses, and I'm sure you did a fair amount of what children who have horses do, where they sort of get on and sometimes they fall off, but they get back on and then they fall off again and they get back on. And some of them get scared and don't want anything to do with horses and others just get on and keep going and eventually they figure out their seat and they can ride their ponies through anything. Right. It's a complex sport. It is a complex sport. And very but particularly for people who are getting who are getting into horses as adults, it's this is one of the great challenges of if you want to ride and the only riding instruction in your area is at a barn where you look at the way the horses are being handled and it makes you really uncomfortable. But you need to learn how how to, how to walk, trot, and canter. How do you learn this without it being at the expense of the horse? And that's tough to find. And that's that is that's a that's a really tough question to answer. Mm-hmm. How do you how do we learn without it being at the expense of the horse? So the people who who uh, come to you, Jane, are incredibly lucky in that you've got these wonderful ponies and and a great background of instruction to share. But let's get to Percy. Mr. Percy. So, Mr. Percy, talk to us a little bit about Percy. Well, as I said before, I had, you know, I had decided that I wanted to breed ponies and I had this imagination that I was going to breed ponies and sell them and make money. Ha! Um, (laughs) And... That's very funny. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and so Andy was the first one and Rumor was the second one. And then my daughter was all grown up and she had a thoroughbred mare who she had evented through preliminary and she was ready to strike out on her own and go out West and be an adult by herself and said, will you keep Zoe for me and I said sure as long as I can breed her um and so we you know we agreed to that but I wanted ponies so I bred her mare to a um German riding pony assuming I would get a pony and I did not (laughs) um he he was bigger than his father by the time he was a year old wow and he got to the size of his mother which was just 15 three you know not big but definitely not a pony and definitely not a pony so definitely not a pony and his and so his mother zoe um she's a seattle slough granddaughter um anna got her because nobody else could ride her she was um, donated actually to our pony club and anna got the ride on her um because she dumped everybody that tried her, and Anna managed to stick tight. Um, Anna had the same upbringing I did, where she got her first pony when she was little, and she learned how to stay on. In fact, when she first joined Pony Club at the age of nine, I said, huh, I'm going to have to get her a saddle, (laughs) Um, because she had done all that riding up until then bareback. 
Um, so she really learned balance and how to stick on and whatnot. Um, so she could stick on this wild, young, seven-year-old thoroughbred mare um, and then stuck through it. Um, and I knew that the mare was hot, if you will, but I was quite sure that with this magical clicker training that I would be able to take a foal of hers who, you know, how you always put them together in your imagination that you're going to combining the best of the stallion and mare yes. with no yes. guarantees that you're not actually going to end up with the worst of the stallion and mare. Um, so I thought I was going to get you know, beauty and brains and athleticism. And also I was going to train it through clicker training to be calm and quiet and puppy dog. Um, so I was not giving jeans enough credit at all because I got smart and athletic. Um, and beautiful. And, and sensitive. But the clicker training just made him smarter. <laughs> Um, and more and creative and it really um, I'm still working on the overreactive piece still working on his extreme sensitivity so you know we have we have border collies as well people think I'm crazy because I have Jack Russell's and border collies and thoroughbreds Um, and they're all sensitive but I love them for it yeah. But the sensitive mm. if you if you want the sensitivity in one aspect, you're gonna get it all the way through. Yes. And I and I say this about the border collies, that they're they're brilliant because and, and we ours are working dogs, you know, we have livestock and they are working dogs and their brilliance is in their sensitivity to what the livestock are going to do before they do it. Mm-hmm. But that also means that they're also sensitive to sounds and movements, and weather, and electricity, and, you know, all these things. We could, our first border collies, we couldn't figure out why they were terrified of a certain part of the lawn, and it was where our electric fence was grounded, and we could walk over it, Mm -hmm. and the other dogs could walk over it, but the border collies could feel it. Wow, right. Um, And they were the ones that were terrified. You know, I thought I was being nice to the border collies by letting them grow up in the house, and they were terrified of... You know, the the Oshkosh overalls getting clanging around in the dryer and, you know, the kids who would suddenly scream and the poor border collies would go flying. And I finally said, okay, (laughs) you're going to be happier out in the barn where it's more peaceful and more quiet. And that's not to say that people don't have border collies as pets and whatnot. But so so that and the same was true with Percy, as sensitive as he is and clever and smart and he sees and his, he's so perceptive to my movements and my moods and my cues, but he's also sensitive to the big wide world. And, um, you know, one of the examples is we have livestock. We raise Angus cattle. He grew up with Angus cattle literally in an adjoining paddock from the day he was born. And he was, ah, I think, three years old. And the neighbor turned some Holsteins out in a field down the hill. And he'd never seen black and white cows. He lost weight for three days standing and staring at these cows and he wouldn't eat. Wow. Because they were black and white and cows weren't supposed to be black and white. Wow. 
you know, and I mean, not only were they black and white, but they were dairy cows, so they were shaped differently than an Angus who's a beef cow. And so, yeah, he sees the monsters coming over the hill. He's the one, you know, we know if something's amiss on the farm because all of a sudden he goes into what I call his, his figure pose, you know, the first Justin Morgan figure. And, you know, being a Vermonter, I'm, I know the, the statue of figure with his head up yep. and his nostrils flaring. So when he does his figure pose out in the paddock, I know that there's something going on somewhere, whether it's a logging truck or a coyote or, you know, a hawk. A, a, a deer. Yeah, I know. Oh, and my that's, God. It's because he tells me. So um, <laughs> he, he's pretty sensitive to what's going on in his world, which has made me um, be very creative in my training plans. Yes. Yes. So do you want to share your your project of your 2018 project? Because that's been a fascinating... My yeah, the, what you've been doing with getting him so he can work further and further afield. Right. Um, or should well, we share, should we leave that one for another day and share the, your do it differently? We want both. <laughs> well, I know. There's the music. But don't worry, normally I would be jumping in here to say that you have to wait until next week to hear the rest of this conversation. Instead, I'm just going to give you a short break. We normally stop the podcast after about 25 minutes, but this week's episode is going to be a long one. If you want to stop here and pretend you're getting two podcast episodes this week, this would be a good stopping place. Otherwise, let's keep going and let Jane tell us more about Percy, including how she started him under saddle and the curveballs he threw at her in that process. We're heading to a really creative teaching strategy that Jane is using to help Percy cope with new environments. I'm glad she's giving us such a detailed introduction to Percy. It's going to help you appreciate all the more what she's developed for him. So let's jump back in and let Jane tell us more about Percy. Let's start Let's start with the do it differently. Because you did that one first, didn't you, with him? I, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. That where you you put something different out every day? You kept changing. Oh, oh, oh. You changed the environment yeah. every day? Because that was... You started right. with that with him. Well, you started with many other things before that. Right. Um, yeah. Um, I have to say, before we get... I mean, you... Uh, cause at one point you brought Percy to my barn for a mm-hmm. visit, which was great fun. And you, uh, you in in my mind, you you just went zooming up into the stratosphere of horse of considerate horse owners because we we let Percy have the indoor arena for his 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 stall his overnight, and you had really comfortable alternatives of where you could camp out for the night but you chose to bring your sleeping bag down in onto the uh, middle landing of the stairs and set up camp there so that you could watch him through the night and I when I saw where you you had camped out I thought 
what a great, clever place to be because you can, you're, you're so connected to the horse all night long. Well, he was so restless. You know, he wouldn't, you know, when we first let him out, you know, his sensitivity and, and your gorgeous arena is open on one side, which has that expanse of looking out over the valley. Yeah. He just, you know, couldn't get enough of yeah, yeah. looking out over the valley to see where the monsters were coming from. And so he, you know, he started by cantering back and forth. And then he, over a couple hours, he finally went to training, trotting back and forth. And if I was with him yep. and had him focused on me, he would calm down. But as soon as I left him, he would start this pacing again. So I slept there because we'd gotten to the point where if I was touching him, he would be quiet. Um, and so by lying on that, you know, on the, the middle landing, landing yeah. of your stairs, I was able to put a hand through the railing and just leave a hand on him and drift off to sleep that way. And that calmed him down enough so that he was able to stay still. But if I tried to leave him and go off to another room that had heat, for example, um, <laughs> oh, minor he detail. would start pacing again. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And they are social animals. And, you know, to abandon them to themselves yeah. is, is not... Well, and what yes, was... Some horses can manage that, but yeah. if they're at the stage where they can't, it's not fair to leave. Yeah. But I had brought Kizzy, too. I had Kizzy Pony with us as a companion. And she, you know, speaking of clever ponies, she was a third his size and always bossed him around. So that's why I thought she'd be a good companion, because she was confident yeah. and she could make him behave. And she was little and easy to take with me, and I knew would not be a problem once we got there. But that was when he learned to chase her around, because he was so worried that he just drove her all around your arena, just herded her constantly. And we had to use your panels to build her a safe enclosure within the arena so that she could get a break from him constantly pushing her around. So he even had her as company, and that wasn't enough. Right. Right. So. And it just, it, it shows again the, that he is one of those individuals who's sitting out on the very edges of the bell-shaped curve. Yeah. I read a fascinating book a long, a while ago. I'm trying to remember what the title of it was. It was some, something really simple like personality or something like that. But it was, the author was looking at mice and at all of these sort of genetically engineered mice, because they can now breed lines of mice that are really timid and lines of mice that are really brave and bold, and they do various studies on, on these genetic lines. But her premise was, I guess the question she was asking is, why, are, why do all of these different personality types exist and why do they persist within a population? And why do you have really bold mice, for example, and some that are really, really timid? And why do you have the horses who are constantly on alert? You would think that that, that horse would be, at a sense, at a real disadvantage because he's not spending the same amount of time eating 
as the rest of his herd mates. And why does, why would you want to tolerate somebody who's, who's constantly vigilant like that? But of course, within a herd structure, there's a huge advantage to having those individuals who are hypervigilant, because then the rest of the herd can relax and just get on with eating. Right. Uh, with the mice, this is totally on a tangent, but I always found it really interesting mm -hmm. that if you have a very timid mouse who doesn't spend a lot of time exploring, who stays very close to the nest, versus a mouse who is out there uh, ranging further from its nest, doing a lot more exploration. Well, in a, in a bad year where food is scarce, the mouse that is very brave and bold is at a huge advantage because that's the mouse that is going to venture out far enough to find enough food to take back to the nest and raise her, her young. But she's also, because she's going out further, she's putting herself at greater risk of being caught by a predator. So there's this trade-off between going out and exploring versus exposing yourself more to predators. So the timid mouse it isn't putting itself at such a great risk of being caught by a predator, but on a bad year, that timid mouse is not going to find enough food to raise all of its young. But on a good year, that timid mouse has a huge advantage because the food is closer to hand. She can get enough food, but she's not exposing herself as much to predators. And you start looking at uh, some of these factors and you say, okay, so why do these, why do we see such a huge range of personality types within the population that we're interested in? As you say with Percy, you just did not initially appreciate just how powerful those genes could be in the personality that was expressed. Before they breed an animal? <laughs> and, and it's certainly something that people should care about before they get an animal? Yeah. Because once, well, yeah, before they breed or before they, you know, before they pick a, a breeder or, you know, same with dogs, you know, we know that although it is a study of one and your animal could be within his own breed, it is a study of one, but there are predisposition in, you know, like Shetland might be more of a barker and you want to know these things before you get the animal because after that you can modify behavior with clicker training obviously and that's what you'll have to do the you know but the time to think about that is before you get the animal because after you've gotten the animal it's just too late and right. just concentrate on modifying behave the behavior of the individual that you have in front of you it's easier if it's a good match and this is something that i always say if you knew nothing but basic targeting and you were going horse shopping and you went down a, a say you went to a dealer's so you've got 10 horses to look at and you you asked each one of them uh, if you held a target out and, and gave each horse a couple minutes of target training, you, you will learn so much 
watching the reactions of the, those horses. And some of the horses are going to be super quick and super eager. They're going to catch on really fast. They're going to touch the target. You're going to click, you're going to give them a treat and they're going to have it. And they'll be right back touching the target again. And, 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 uh, and you click and they're already two steps ahead of you. And then there are going to be other horses that they come up, they touch the target, they get their treat, and then they have to think about it for a little bit, and they kind of look at the target, and they think about it, and then they move really slowly, and they go over and touch the target, and you can click and treat. Two completely different individuals. And knowing that, you can look at it and say, well, you know, that super quick horse, would I'd feel overwhelmed by that horse. And and I need the slow reaction time of the second horse. Or you might say, that slower horse would drive me crazy. Give me that quick horse any day of the week. So knowing, having a good match is, is uh, to start out is a huge advantage. But we don't always have a good match. And sometimes we, you know, when you breed a horse, you breed your own kids, as it were. Percy is Percy is Percy. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, you know, I I read somewhere, and I wish I could remember where, the whole notion of um, learned helplessness and a shutdown horse and that whole thing, we understand it as a concept and that if we expose an individual to a certain type of stimuli, you know, flood them and do all this, that they're going to shut down, they're going to give up. But that in the studies they did at some point, not all the individuals ended up with learned helplessness. And it was something like 20% of them did not. And, And wherever I was reading this said, that's not often talked about. And I think to me, it makes sense, and you'll hear it a lot in the horse world and maybe the competitive dog world too, is it's the really difficult horses that are the stars competitively. And I associate that with that's because those are the ones who never gave up under these situations that so many horses go through in their learning process. They still had, I hate to use the word fight, but they still had life, vigor, whatever in them, even though they'd been drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled. And so they were difficult from a perspective of dealing with them, but they also still were able to go on and want to shine in their world, if you will. And I think that's where the you know, the the brilliant competitive animals come from. It's an interesting point. Is that yeah. they have so much vitality in them that, you know, whether it's speed for racing or height for jumping or speed for agility in a dog, all these things, I think, in the traditional training world, um, if they have survived all of the drilling and, you know, I hate, you know, I don't want to be judgmental about what it's done, but the things that have so many of them shut down and give up and be quote-unquote well-behaved, 
because they've just quit, um, that they, the others are able to shine. Yeah, yeah. So, Percy, what, so you've, um, you have this, this horse who sits at the edge of the bell-shaped curve. What have you done with him? What are some of the, the creative strategies that you've been developing because Percy is in your barn? Um, well, I think one of the first, when he was a baby, I had to give him something to do with his energy and his restlessness. So to avoid having him you know, chew on my coat, I taught him to retrieve so he could do that. And to avoid having him in you know too much in my space I of course <laughs> he learned all of Alexander Curlin's foundation lessons early on um <laughs> yes the problem was everything I taught him he used against me and by that I mean he I finally have a fence and stalls that will hold him because he can open gates including electric gates, like nobody's business. Wow. And if he can't open the gate, he'll jump out, because I thought it was a good idea to teach him to jump, agility-wise, on his own one summer. <laughs> well, guess what? That fall, he jumped out of every fence I put him in. Wow. Um, yeah. And then he would come to the back door <laughs> and say, waiting for I'm me. here. You know? He didn't run away. Right. Come and I had to me. give him treats. I had to give him treats because he came to the door. He didn't run away. And I couldn't ignore him because he was loose. So guess who decided it was great fun to get out? And he can open, you know, door latches. I've got triple, quadruple locks on all my gates and doors because he can open them all. Wow. So he um, is a smart horse. He's smart. And, you know, he's got these prehensile lips that can do just about anything. <laughs> and, you know, I took him to his very first clinic when he was two or three with Alex. And she taught him left and right in, you know, one session. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And I had no idea what either one of them were doing. Um, but he thought this lady in the hat was just about the most fun person he had ever met in his life. Because right. she at least kept life interesting. Right. It wasn't just, oh, touch the target. It was touch the target that's on the left. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. While Jane stood there with her jaw hanging <laughs> open. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and part of the challenge with Percy is that life got in the way. Various things in my life, not bad things, you know, children getting married and moving to a bigger farm and all these things that happened in the summers and kind of got in the way of progress. Well, and another, several things that happened. So, when he was three, I decided to start backing him. And I had no intention of riding him as a three-year-old, but I wanted him to understand that sometimes people got on his back. So when he was three, I got all ready. And one decision I made, and I've stuck to, is I was going to do all his ridden work, uh, start all his ridden work in a halter. I said, if I don't feel safe enough to get on this horse in a halter, I don't want to be getting on him. So this was a real move away from the traditional approach. You know, I wasn't going to put equipment on him that was going to prevent him from being yes. Yes. reactive. I was going to make sure that the training was there so that I could feel comfortable getting on him. 
So when he was three, I got on him for the first time and he didn't mind at all. And so once a month that year, I got on him and I sat there for a few minutes and I got off. I wanted him to learn it wasn't a big deal that we got on and then we got off, it wasn't a big deal. So then when he was four, I said, okay, you know, now we're gonna start walking around and doing little stuff. And he said, no, you get on and then you get off. This is what we've been practicing for a year now. And I said, uh-oh. <laughs> So I had to work through that one, and I don't honestly remember how I convinced him to, to move with me under saddle, but I do remember the first time I tried to get on him on the wrong side, and he walked away from me and turned around and came back to the mounting block with me on the correct side. Um, he's, this is where you get on. This is the way you've been getting on for the last year. We're not going to change things now. This is the way we do it. So I said, okay. And then the first time I lunged him, um, stood in the middle and have him go around in a circle. He, you know, I clicker trained him through it and he was, got it just fine. And then I went to the other side and he wouldn't move. And I gave the same cue <laughs> and he knew how to walk off when I asked him to walk off. We'd been doing that since he was a baby in hand. He knew a verbal walk on cue. And I went back to the left and he walked off beautifully around me. And I went back to the right and he wouldn't move. So I went back to the left and I looked at my body and I said, what are you doing? And I studied myself carefully and I went back to the right and I said, oh, you didn't switch the line over to the other hand. And I switched the line over to the other hand and he said, walk on and he walked on. Good grief. So details matter. Yes. With this horse. Yes. Yeah. Um, very, very much. Um, so then, you know, it came to riding and it was the summer that we moved and, you know, we have a couple hundred head of livestock and we had 25 years worth of belongings and we moved ourselves. We didn't use a moving company and we didn't, you know, it was the two of us and all this stuff and it took us months to move and we were only moving, you know, an hour north. So we made these little trips with, you know, we looked like the, the clampets, you know, with all our belongings tied down with bungee cords to a trailer and creeping up at four o'clock in the morning so nobody would arrest us for this ungodly trailer load that we were moving down the road. Anyway, there was a lot to think about. And that was the year I tried to do more with him riding. And one, so I was riding him and we were going around the round pen and we were going, I think we were going mat, we were either going mat to mat around the round pen and then going into a cone or vice versa. Um, but at one point he said, okay, it's time to turn in. And I said, not yet, I want you to go to one more. And he said, no, I'm turning in. And my traditional horse training kicked in. And I gave a little kick with my inside leg. And the next thing I knew I was on the ground. Ouch. And that's when I said, okay, you don't have the presence of mind this summer to be doing this. This horse requires all hands on deck mentally. And you can't, you know, I just didn't have it. I had too many other things on my brain that summer. Things, yep, so yep, yep. he got put on the back burner. And the focus was on moving and relocating and building a barn and all the other things that I had to do. And years went by sort of with that sort of thing, one thing or another happening, so that he got older than I wanted. And, and, and meanwhile, this was stuck in my head, that this horse 
had all of his mother's athletic ability and I was not the 17-year-old that my daughter was when she was able to stay on his mother when she leapt and twirled in the air. Um, it hurt to fall off at that age. It does. It um, does. Especially when you don't just sort of slip gracefully off the side, but when you get catapulted out of the saddle. So, you know, so time went on. Um, and that's, you know, that's just an example of, of how I needed to really be completely present um, when I work with him. You know, I have a training plan template that I use every day, and it, it, he's the one that taught me. You need to think about what you're doing, and you need to have your brain lined up to go before you go out there, because um, if you don't, bad things happen. Um, so he, you know, I mean, he's done a, a lot of groundwork. He's done a lot of, as I say, I did agility with him one summer. He would go over jumps on his own. He will lunge at Liberty. Just lots of fun stuff. He loves to retrieve. Don't drop anything in my barn because Percy's going to bring it to you. <laughs> One day he saved me because in the winter I wear yak tracks when it's icy and I didn't even realize one had come off until I finished putting out hay and I turned around and there's Percy standing behind me with a yak track dang dangling from his lips. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he does, he loves his fun and games yeah. and whatnot. And you did, uh, was he the one that you did the um, voluntary shots? Yes. You, yes. Yes. Where because you had him he, come up to the fence of your round pen and present his neck for a shot? Yeah. Like the way we see in zoos. Because he wanted nothing to do, nothing to do with my veterinarian. Absolutely not. And, you know, when he was a baby, the first time the farrier came, when he was a couple weeks old, so with the others, you know, the farrier had, the when he came, when they were babies, he would just pick up their feet and tap, 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 and, you know, gradually get them used to that. And they, once they got old enough to eat hay stretcher pellets, we'd do the open bar until they got used to just standing there and letting him file their feet a little bit. And so when Percy was a baby, I thought, mm, you know, I'm not sure I'm really going to be able to hold on to him because the farrier I had at the time was wonderful. He wasn't, he wasn't a positive reinforcement trainer mentality, but he was very quiet and calm. And if they struggled, he just stood there. He held on and was just very quiet, and they would relax. So I decided I wasn't the one to try to help him hold on because I thought Percy was going to be a little stronger than that. And so I had my husband hold his halter. And in very short order, um, there was a scuffle and... Both Percy and my husband were on the ground, and my and Percy was not the one that was bleeding. <laughs> Ooh. Um, so I thought, okay, this isn't going to work, just holding on to this horse. We're going to have to work on this and do a little clicker training and do it, break it down much smaller steps and pieces. And he was, you know, I did, and he was fine. He was great. But he didn't care for the vet, didn't care for him at all. And you, you're not going to hold him. You know, there's a horse of that size and that athleticism. You're not, you know, maybe if I had put a chain shank under his lip the way we did in the good old days, we might have been able to get him to hold still. But I doubt it. So right. I did, right. yeah, I taught him to 
I taught him to target. Well, I realized that in order to have access to his neck, I needed two points of contact. Because if, he, if we just had him targeting his nose, he could swing his butt away in order to remain in protective contact with somebody on the outside of the round pen. And if you just had him target his side to the round pen, he could turn his head away. So he needed to target both his shoulder and his nose to spots on the round pen so that the neck remained still and you could give him an injection. And again, so I went through this process. Everything was going beautifully. My vet was able to actually... I went through the process after the vet had given up and he left the vaccine with me and I gave him his shots. But then the next year, we got through it, um, but the vet went to draw blood. And Percy said, no, that's a different process. You know, the needle is not going into the muscle on my neck. Yeah, Sliding down. And that was a fascinating um, situation too because I actually taught him that while he was drugged. When the vet couldn't do it, I gave him an IM injection of relaxant, and he immediately started to droop, and the vet went off to do another call and said, I'll be back, you know, in 45 minutes or something to to draw the blood. And in that time, even though he was um, under Dormosidan, I taught him that when I slid my hand down his jugular the way they do to to stop the blood, you know, to, to make the the, the vein yep. pop yep. up, that was a cue to drop his head and hold still. And I found that fascinating that even under the influence of Dormosidan, he was able to learn and hold that. Wow. So that when the vet came back. So I have a question about that first summer when you taught him to have someone mm-hmm. on his back. With all your experience now, if you had to redo, replan for this summer, what would you change? You mean so that he didn't think he was supposed to hold still? Well, so that the next year when you wanted to walk, he didn't say, no, 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 that's not the yeah. rule. The rule is you get off and you give me a treat. Yeah. How would you, because, you know, some people may listen to this and think, well, that was a pretty gentle and nice way of introducing him to uh, having someone on his back like that. So what would you do differently now? How would you do it? I think in an, if you had to restart yeah, him. I, I think I've never thought about that, but I think what I would do um, is have somebody lead me. Mm-hmm. Have a trustworthy handler on the ground. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't have any steering yet. Right. And, um, you know, it was still a little questionable as to how he was going to react. Because sitting on their back and then when you first move is very different. Yes. As is bending over, you know, because a lot of us, when we first back, we stay low because horses don't like to see something up above them. So when you first get on the first few times, you, you keep, basically hug them around the neck sort of so that you stay low. And then the first time you sit up, sometimes horses react. And, and sometimes they're okay with that, but it's when you move or when they move and you move a little on them. So I think if I had had a a trustworthy handler so that I could have just been a passenger and that he was working off someone on the ground as opposed to me on his back, I would have gotten on maybe once a couple times in a row on progressive days and then had someone lead me around so that he understood that sometimes we stand, sometimes we move. Mm -hmm. Um, and then gradually start transitioning him to 
direction from his back. Mm -hmm. That's just off the top of my head right now what I would what I would say. Would he have been one where if you'd put a, a mat, say, one or two steps past the mounting block, would he have gone to the to the mat and then you could hop off? He he might have. He he did seem to be fairly glued. You know, there's an unstable yeah. thing on my back and I'm not sure I should you know, I, I relate it to to the way a lot of my lesson ponies are when when kids try to trot the first time and they look at me and go, no, this kid is not stable enough up there yet. We're going to yes. stay at a walk. Yes. Um, and I sort of got that feeling from him that, you know, there's something up there and it's wobbly and I don't think I better move. So I think having someone on the ground would have, you know, and I mean, that's the way I did it with the other two. You know, when I backed Andy and Rumor, certainly I did it by myself mm-hmm. and they were fine. It was just this particular individual that said rules are rules this is how he processed it right well it it makes me think of one of alex's mantra for every exercise you teach you should teach an opposite exercise to keep things in balance and i find that in my um you know i don't have the the as much history as you have but when i have not thought about this in advance I've gotten into trouble sometimes because when it's one rule and one thing for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, you can understand that the animal will say, well, that's the rule. Why? Exactly. How come you're changing it now? Absolutely. So I think it, if, if from the get-go, you know, if you teach staying on, you have to teach moving off. If you teach moving forward, you have to teach backing up. I mean, we could make a whole list like this, but I think it's a it's an important concept to keep yeah. in mind. But the art is knowing when to start to introduce the opposite. Mm. So you know, you you uh, you start out by teaching a horse to shift forward and to go forward, and you you don't you've got this horse that's been really stuck, and you work quite diligently on. Can you move? Can you can you shift your balance enough so that you actually take a step and you you work on that diligently and you start celebrating the fact that this very stuck horse is now walking forward one step, two steps, and you don't necessarily recognize or realize or even want to introduce yet the oh and by the way, could you stop? So the there is an art to knowing when do I start to introduce the the opposite reaction pattern, the balancers. And you don't realize necessarily, I mean, Jane, you didn't realize that you didn't have go forward for a while. What you were celebrating was that you could get on this horse and he was just standing quietly. And that's cause for celebration. That's right. And I think the fact that I had go forward so well in hand. Yep. You know, I had walk on both, you know, I taught him that both leading Mm -hmm. and lunging. Right. So I was confident that my cue would transfer under saddle. And that's where I got stuck because it didn't. Yeah. And at that point, I was still smart enough to know that I didn't want to bop him in the sides with my feet. Um, Right. And... And it was, you know, a little. A lot of times you can get a, a stuck horse moving by turning them. 
But when you've got a mounting block to one side, that gets in the way of doing one of yes. those, you know, just yes. turn on the forehand type situations where they have to catch their balance. And I was doing, you know, one of my biggest handicaps is that I'm all alone. <laughs> you know, my husband, God bless him, is, you know, has some horse work in his history, but with our farm and his job and everything else, he doesn't have time to help me. He was always flat out busy doing his things. And um, so whatever so I... So it just makes us, it just means that we have to, it's, it's that don't take score too soon because most of us do not have a training partner and we don't have the advantage of a, a knowledgeable ground person who has a re, enough of a relationship with the horse that it will be safe. Right. So you just have to get, uh, come up with clever strategies. But there's something you said a couple minutes ago that I'm sure made some people's uh, ears perk up, where you said that you always have a, you have a training uh, template. Can you describe what that means? Um, I have, so I have an acronym that I use and I actually wrote a blog post about this very recently and so I have a template that I use use this acronym so that before I go out to train and this is if I'm working on more complex behaviors like I'm not using it right now because what I'm working on in the winter you know it's cold and snowy and unsuitable for doing much outside the barn so right now I'm working on you know, maintaining behaviors right. and body work and stuff like that. But when I'm working on more complex behaviors, I have a template that includes everything from what I want to do that day and where I'm going to work and that intention of what mindset am I taking to this individual. And that's a, a large part because of Percy, but I also have his personality opposite in my barn in my lesson pony stowaway who was the most shut down individual I have ever worked with in my life it has it took me an entire winter to teach that pony to target he had been a camp pony he had been ridden hour after hour after hour by kids at a camp and he was the most he was convinced that unless he was beaten, wow. he should not move. Wow. And that he better not ever have a creative idea in his head. And so when I go to him, I have to have a very different mindset than when I go to Percy. Because if I take my Zen mind my Zen Percy mindset to stowaway, yes. he says, Okay. He said, you can come in and nap with me if you'd like. <laughs> wow. Um, so I have to go to him more with an active, happy, playful, you know, you know, click and treat and click and treat and move and, you know, all this sort of thing. Um, and if I took that to Percy, we'd be blast off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then, so then the template includes that. It includes how I'm going to get from point A to, you know, from, from when I first what I call when the animal first sees me. Because, you know, where we live right now, I step out the back door and the pasture is you know, 40 feet, you know, up a bank. And, and the horses can see me when I first step out. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that they're reading my body language right then. 
And so if I step out the door thinking about something else, or if I step out the bar door frustrated from... Whatever, life. A, you know, talking to the bank or the credit card company yes, or something, yes, right. they're going to pick up on that. And also then, if I'm going to train in the arena, how am I going to get them to the arena? You know, is it going to be... I'm going to throw a halter and lead rope and walk out and not pay attention to this horse that's behind me because the training doesn't start until we get to the arena? Or am I going to, what techniques am I going to use? What skills am I going to use? Are we going to do it at liberty? Are we going to stop and graze on the way out? Are we going to, um, are we not going to, are we going to focus on not stopping and grazing on the way out? What can I do so that when we arrive at our training spot, we're ready the best we can to start my lesson for that day. So there's, uh, it, it's somewhat complicated. When I try to explain it to other people, they say, oh my gosh, that's way too complicated for me. But I can do it in less than five minutes. I'm, I'm familiar enough with my own template at this point that I can write it down, zip through it in less than five minutes and be ready to go. So if people wanted to uh, to read this, your your blog is called... What's the name of your blog and the title of this uh, this particular one? The title of the blog is, it's bookends, well, the, the internet address is bookendsfarm.blogspot.com. So you can find it that way. Okay. And to find this particular blog? That is a good question. You don't remember the title? I don't remember the name of the... That's all right. They can just read all of your articles because you write beautifully. Yeah. Well, thank you. And and I love reading your your articles. It may be in the search or if they do... um... I pulled it it up. It's called Daily Planning and Journaling. And then um, the one that I did right before that was training goals and planning for the new year. And in that post, I talked more about long-term training, you know, the, the big picture training. So like, what am I going to work on this winter? I talked about how I plan that. And then in the, the daily one, I talk about mm-hmm. more. I, and I don't go through my own acronym because yeah. I say, as I say, it can confuse some people. It basically boils down to who, what, where, when, how, and why. And if I go through those things for each training session, it it does a good job of covering everything that I want to think about beforehand. It sure it makes a difference when you're you know when you know what you're going for and what your strategy is going to be. You're not just making all these decisions on the fly. It makes a huge difference. Right, it does. So so I'm really itching for you to describe the training that you did with Percy. To, to get him comfortable moving into different locations in, around your barn and your farm. Okay. Um, well, that's complicated, too. <laughs> Nothing about this horse is uncomplicated. I know, but it's, it's, it's I mean, there's so much in the way that you describe it that I uh, really admire and appreciate. And I loved how structured you were. I loved how much you thought about it in advance. I loved the rule structure that you created. I love that you you um, didn't just say, poor me, I have this reactive horse and I guess I, I could never take him outside of the barnyard. So, you know, there's just, uh, from start to finish, there's so much in there. And what I also know is there are a lot of people who have horses 
They may not have horses that are as challenging as Percy, but they have horses that for their skill level, they're not comfortable taking the horse out of the familiar right. paddock and, and barnyard. And and I think that's a big part of my plan and why it succeeded was because not only did it break it down for Percy, but it broke it down for me. Yes. And I wasn't worried about what was going to happen with this horse if I got down the road and all of a sudden he decided he wanted to go home because I wasn't going to stop him and I didn't want my horse running down the middle of the road to get back to the barn. But not sure how much you want me to go into right now but i can sort of do an oh i can do the why i can do the overview of what happened is that what you want basically just the the overview of the plan i would say go into whatever go into whatever depth you want to go in that's not the right answer we want details we want to hear what you did no cutting corners with an overview And that's exactly what Jane gave us in the next part of the conversation. She shared in detail two procedures. The first one was designed to help Percy cope with day-to-day changes in his environment. And the second one helped him leave the security of the barnyard and familiar paddocks without becoming a nervous wreck. I know this is something that can be a huge challenge for many horses, but you can hear from the music that you're going to have to wait until next week to hear what Jane came up with. You've met Percy. You know he's one of those horses who lives on the fringes of any bell-shaped curve you try to fit him into. So I'm sure you already know that whatever Jane's plan is, it will be both creative and it will have her stamp of systematic, thoughtful training applied to it. So join us next week to find out what she did. And Normally, I would sign off here by saying, have fun with your training, but I know some of you have been dealing with truly Arctic temperatures. There's not much training when the thermometer is reading 20 below. And for those of you in Europe, remember that's degrees in Fahrenheit. So it's just been brutally cold for many of us. The cold descended on us yesterday, though it was nothing like what those of you who are living in the Midwest got. I hope you're all staying safe and your and your horses are okay through this weather. I brought all the goats in two nights ago and for the first time since the barn was built, I closed all the outside doors. It's, it's actually really cozy having everyone inside. It's truly all creatures great and small. I think though that Robin is wishing someone would come up with winter gloves that really work for clicker training. He's not cold, and he doesn't understand why our play sessions have been so short the last couple of days. But take your, the, the gloves off and have a horse drool all over your hands in this kind of weather, and it gets cold fast. But enough of that. It's time to sign off. So stay warm, stay safe, and we'll have another podcast episode for you next week.